Holy God, we pray that you would open up this scripture to our hearts and our minds, and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts would be worthy in your sight, O God. You are our rock, you are our redeemer. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's very, very good to see all of you. Um, I just got back from vacation, and I'm still in that place where I get to brag about it, so here I go. Um, I really do mean this, though. I meant I missed you while I was gone, but I decided because I'm turning 30 in about a week or so that I was going to take a month off and go to Europe and see what it had for me. So I went to Portugal, I went to Spain, I went to Italy, and I went to France. And I got to do some really awesome stuff. Like, I got to watch the World Cup finale on the beach in Barcelona as the sun was setting. I got to run with the bulls in Pamplona, which was as terrifying and as fun as you think it may be. Uh, I got to eat amazing food on the Italian coast. I got to go to Paris. I got to sit in front of Monet's water lilies. It was an amazing trip. It was a trip that I feel so blessed to have been able to take part in, and it's really, honestly, it's a God thing in the ways it came together, and so I just am thankful that I had that moment in my life. But while I really loved being away, towards the end, I actually really wanted to come home. I, I think it's nice to get away. It's nice to take time to feel refreshed and to have the opportunity to escape. But at a certain point, I really did just want to be here. Like, I wanted to see my friends. I wanted to share my journey. I wanted to tell them about the time that I literally woke up with a man got confused which hotel room was his, and he thought mine was his, and I woke up and he was in bed with me. <laughs> so that was a thing. We worked it out. He was a floor below. His name's Patrick. He's from Ireland. We've talked on Facebook. Things are great. <laughs> um... I also learned some things on my, on my journey that I wanted to share when I came back. And so a couple things that I came across that I thought I might share with you were, one, I really did learn that there's a difference between tourists and travelers. And I found myself wanting to be places where all the travelers were and avoid all the places the tourists were. I would commend you to think about it that way, too. I also learned that when you travel, possessions own you. You don't own them. Which is a challenge for me because those of you who may know me, this won't be a shock, but for those of you who don't, I'm a planner. I like to plan. I like to plan for what might be, what could be, what may be in the glimmer of whatever might happen. And then I plan to make all those things happen and to have what I need to make them happen. So if this happens or that happens, I have this or that to do that, right? In all my planning, my bag initially weighed over 50 pounds before I left. <laughs> right? Because a month in four different countries, right? There's a lot of planning to do. Well, I came to my senses and I pared down, and I actually ended up paring down as I went because I realized that these things were owning me, and I actually wasn't able to engage where I was because I was lugging this bag that my friends affectionately referred to as Bellevue because they felt like I'd brought all of it with me. <laughs> I also learned on my trip uh, with traveling with three people for a month and that we learned that sugarcoating things was really just a waste of time at a certain point, and that it was just easier to say what you need to say. My friend Megan would look, we'd start to sugarcoat, and she would say, can we just stop having the nice off and just say what we want to say? It was helpful because we ended up actually getting able, to, we were able to do what it is we wanted to do. We got to do more, and we actually honored each other more in the process. And it's in the spirit of that that I kind of want to just dive into our scripture today. One of my old army commanders used to say to me, hey, Robeson, I want the bottom line up front so we can figure out what we need to do and how to do it. I think that's what we need to do with our text here today. So jump in with me. In this narrative, we can see that yet again, the early church is having a problem about how to work out what it means to be the people of God. And the issue they're having here is whether or not the Gentile converts to Christianity needed to observe both the practice of circumcision and the law of Moses. Essentially, it's a debate about whether or not you needed to become Jewish in order to be saved. 
And I'm sure that Peter and Paul had thought they'd already dealt with this issue. You know, Kendi had talked last week about Cornelius, and he's the guy who was the Roman centurion. He was also a Gentile, and uh, Peter had had a vision where God had said, hey, whatever is clean, don't call unclean, and what I've declared clean is clean. At the same time, Cornelius has this vision that he should go see Peter, and so he does. He hears the gospel. He, along with his entire household, are baptized, and the Jewish converts and Jewish believers take this as a sign that, gosh, it's finally happened that God has offered salvation to all people, and it's not just for Israel alone. And they're excited, and it's awesome. But like a lot of things in life, old habits die hard, right? And while the Jewish believers were really stoked and really excited that the Gentiles were accepting the gospel and that it was being given to them, how that was going to be worked out was a completely different thing. See, of all the things that the Jews held dear, the law of Moses was the chief among them. And so it comes to us as no small surprise that they would take an an issue with even a hint of a suggestion that somehow that law would not be the guideline for how one followed Jesus. And so after there was controversy in surrounding churches and, and arguments started sparking up, the leaders of the church decided that they would gather in Jerusalem to hash out this issue. And after a lot of discussion and prayer, they come to this conclusion, which is central to the entire Christian faith. Precisely because God has fulfilled his covenant with Israel in sending Jesus as the Messiah, the covenant family has now been open wide to all without distinction. Let me say that differently. Being a follower of Jesus is no longer connected to what family you come from, where you're from, what race you are, what language you speak, what gender you are, etc. It is simply and singularly about your belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he lived, that he died taking all of our sins to the cross, that he rose again, that he is coming again, and he's bringing heaven with him. Another way to say this, salvation is Jesus plus nothing. And I think that the Jewish converts, as they're hearing that, are having a problem that I think is a little like learning how to share. See, they were given the law and the covenant as something to care for and steward, and this was done by God. And they had been doing this for centuries, and in the process of that, they had developed some really firm ideas about how they thought all of this was going to play out. And then Jesus comes. And like me, and with my plans, and how I sometimes can get married to this is the plan I'm going to do, Jesus does something different. And like me, sometimes I have a hard time shifting gears because I really liked my plan. I put a lot of thought into my plan. My plan was a good plan, right? Jesus does something different. And so they now have this this challenge of renegotiating what that looks like because he screwed up their plan. He had a different one. And now they are living out of an old model as they're being called to step into a new world. And while that can be difficult— It doesn't mean they get to covet or hold salvation as essentially a Jewish thing. In fact, they'd forgotten that they were given the law to care for it on behalf of God for all of creation, not just themselves. Israel was called to be a chosen people, a light unto the nations, that they would, that the people would see them as an example. And they were also told that salvation and grace being offered to all was the point all along. One of the things I get to do here sometimes is I get to teach confirmation, and I love doing that because as much as I love a lot of the nuance and the intricacies of Scripture and the Bible, I love that kids force you to just get to the point. And I like that 
And doing that, we get to really have a conversation and that it's simple. And so when we're talking about salvation, one of the acronyms I like to use to define that is GRACE. It stands for God's Redeeming Actions Concerning Everybody. I'll say it again. GRACE is God's Redeeming Actions Concerning Everybody. Right? Simple. Perfect. See, God's salvific salvific actions are for all without distinction. Right? We're on the same page? Okay. So I'm sure many of you are thinking, you're like, okay, Colin said this would be difficult, how this is lived out, don't think that it is. I know there's going to be sea fair traffic, sermon done, let's go home, right? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. Um, a few months ago, I decided that I was going to get a tattoo. And it's nothing too crazy. It's a picture of this Sitka spruce tree. It's on my forearm. It has a scripture reference. Uh, and it's Psalm 27, 13 through 14. And it, the scripture is, For I have confidence that I will experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord, have courage, take heart, and wait for the Lord. It was a scripture that God has given me over this last season, and it's been very special to me, and that's how I chose to honor that. I did, I was thinking through it, though, as I did it, um, despite what my mother and grandmother might think, um, and I got it high enough in my arm uh, that I, I could cover it up if I needed to, like, say, if I was preaching. Um, and a, a couple Sundays after I got it, I was here at church, and I wasn't assisting in worship that week, and I was just out in the lobby hanging out, and for the first couple weeks, I was aware that it was. I covered it. I was kind of conscious of it to do that, but this was a couple weeks later, and I was just moving on to other things in life, and as I'm apt to do when I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt on a warm day, I rolled up my sleeves, and then someone came up to me. Now, please hear me. I love all of you deeply. But there are times where it's like as a pastor, people can come say things to you. If you want some good stories, ask our female pastors about what they get told about what they wear when they're up front some days. It's fascinating that people see what they wear and not what they hear sometimes, but it's a challenge because you're being watched and people see you. And this person came up to me and said that they didn't think my tattoo was very pastoral. And they actually asked me to cover my arm because they thought that someone might come into church, see my tattoo, and not want to be here because the pastor had one. Now, I was prepared for people to not like it, but I wasn't really prepared for this conversation. And so I'm not sure what to do. I found a way to get to move beyond the conversation, said goodbye, went to talk to someone else. And um, yeah, I did follow up with this person, though, and we talked, and we've just come to this point where we've agreed to disagree about tattoos, and if Christians should have them, much less pastors, and we've found a way to make it work. We just feel differently about the issue. And this is a small taste of what I'm trying to get at with the challenge of this text. See, in the midst of community, with as many different people as we have here, we probably have as many different opinions about what a good pastor is, what the Christian life is like. And I would imagine that in the array of those opinions, that we might disagree on a few of those things. One, let's hope, maybe one. This is what's happening in our story in Acts. The Pharisee converts to Christianity had their own opinions about what one needed to do in order to be saved. They wanted to place those those conditions on on people as a way in which they received the salvation that God had. And what they had done, which I'm sympathetic to because I think many of us are prone to do, is they confused a first thing and a second thing. What I mean by that is, is when we're talking about faith, when we're talking about the community of God, and what it means to be a part of it, there are some primary things, and there are some secondary things. Let me say this differently. Uh, Let's talk about ice cream, okay? Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream, right? Hot day. See, 
all ice cream has the same base ingredients. You need, your, you need your cream, you need your sugar, you need your eggs. It's kind of what defines it as ice cream. Sorbet is uh, fruit or fruit juice and sugar. Frozen yogurt is yogurt and sugar. And I point those distinctions out for you just to know that if you want to you know, say, hey, let's go get ice cream and you take me to frozen yogurt, it, there's a difference. <laughs> okay, let's just, let's just own. So, but from there, people can go all these different directions with ice, with ice cream, right? Like, some people want to add chocolate. Other people want to add vanilla. Other people want to add mint. For some reason, other people want to add bubble gum, which I'm fine with gum and I'm fine with ice cream. I just don't get why both at the same time. Some other people want to add eggnog, which to me is like creamy snot. I think it's disgusting, but other people want to put it in their ice cream. I've seen wasabi ice cream. I've seen blue cheese ice cream. I've seen roasted garlic ice cream, okay? Crazy stuff. Stuff that I look at and think, that is disgusting. I would never, ever eat that. Here's the challenge. No matter how gross I think that it is, it's still ice cream. The same thing could be said about faith in Jesus. The ingredients, the base ingredients for being a follower of Jesus Christ are believing that Jesus Christ is the one and only Lord and Savior, that he lived, that he died taking all of our sins to the cross, that he rose again, and that he's coming back, bringing heaven with him. And from there, yeah, people started to add a host of other things. And while I may like or dislike what it is they add to the mix, as long as they don't mess with the base ingredients, it's still salvation, and it's still focused on Jesus. And that's really challenging. So for those of you who don't know, I served in the military for a while, and when I served, I was a chaplain, and um, one of the hardest things for me to navigate, surprisingly, was other chaplains. <laughs> I know. See, I got lumped into what was called the general Protestant category, uh, which I was a little jealous of, like, the Catholics, because they were, there was the Catholics, and then there, the imams were, there were the Muslims, and then there were the Jews, and then everyone else who called on Jesus were general Protestant. It's like they were, like, wanting theological warfare to happen. Um, anyway, so as we're trying to ch plan a chapel service, I'm all of a sudden doing it with Baptists and Lutherans and Assemblies of God and Episcopalians and me. And all those denominations and all those people, there's nothing wrong with them. We just kind of approach things a little differently, right? Like maybe a different view on communion. Maybe a different view on the role of Scripture. Maybe what we do when all of a sudden we have a female chaplain and she's going to be a part of the service, Right? We're all approaching it a little differently, and most of the times we were able to find a way to keep the main thing the main thing. Because most of the time we were able to remember that it was also the general Protestant service, and everyone coming was generally Protestant, and so we should generally be about Protestant things and not about our specific things. Other times, it wasn't so easy. Sometimes I'd have other chaplains who would want to bait me. I had one guy in particular who used to always want to try and take me to task over baptizing an infant, and he would try and get a rise out of me, and it just felt like every time I saw this guy, that's what happened, right? And the challenge for me in the moments that he did this was to hold on to the, to the truth and the reality that as frustrated as I got, I knew that we agreed on more than we disagreed on. And that what we agreed on were actually the essential things. And so as frustrated as I got with his flavor of ice cream or the variety of Christian faith he was espousing, had to remember it was still ice cream. Had to remember it was still about Jesus. He was still my brother in Christ, and I needed to find a way to eat my, eat my ice cream as he ate, he ate his ice cream, and to do it in peace. 
Because despite his actions, I was still called to work out my faith. And I was still called to honor other people, even when we disagreed. And I think that this is something that our story in Acts is addressing as well. Because as much as the Council of Jerusalem was willing to look at the Pharisees and say, hey, this condition that you're laying down, that people have to be circumcised and they have to live by the law of Moses, it's not, it's not holding up. They also didn't say that the law was bad. What they said was that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They said, yeah, the law's good. It's fine. It's just not the final thing. And that we get in Jesus. That's what the law was pointing us towards the entire time. And in the same way, they turned to the Gentile converts, and they said, the law's not bad. It actually has some things in there that would be good for you to follow. It would help you. And some of the stuff they listed in our text, like, that sounded kind of odd, like, avoid blood, or meat that's been strangled, or fornication, or meat sacrificed to idols, really what they're getting at is that the Gentiles should abstain from the pagan practices of the culture around them. And they did that because it, you know, it would be good for them to not do those things, but more importantly, they're asking them not to do it because they were calling on them to honor their fellow believers who were still culturally and ethnically Jewish, but were still believing in Jesus. And as we, we oftentimes have to do in community, they found a third way that honored both the Pharisees and the Gentiles. They make the case to the Pharisees that there's no needful circumcision here. That you, you don't need to continue to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. And they also say to the Gentiles, there's no needful offense that needs to be paid here. And what they're saying to them is, hey, as much as we're saying you don't need to do these things in order to be saved, you also don't need to be rude or inconsiderate or slap Jewish Christians in the face and tell them that their traditions or their beliefs or their culture is somehow now obsolete. What they did was find a way through it that honored Jesus, that made Jesus the main thing. And I think in doing that, they were actually honoring the words that Jesus quoted from the law of Moses when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The principle that the Council of Jerusalem was operating under was one that helped them navigate this formula for salvation. But I think it's one that can also help us navigate the differences of opinions, the debates, and the arguments that we have in church today. Because sure, I can't remember the last time I sat down and argued with somebody about the need to be circumcised in order to be saved, or some other thing like that. I can, however, think about all the other things that we sit and we discuss, we debate, and dare I say fight about in the church. And whatever those things may be, part of what I think this scripture is trying to remind us is that those things have the potential to divide us, to exclude others, and to cause harm. And I feel, I feel pretty strongly that we need to take note from this story and figure out how to navigate the challenges and the debates as we engage them. We, like the examples that the apostles have set for us, we got to find a way to move past winning and being right and instead choose to focus on Jesus and ask him to help us find a different solution. 
Now, when I first shared this draft of my sermon with the sermon review group, um, there's a group of faithful people who meet at 6.30 on Thursdays to hear this so that what you hear is better. And uh, I got some feedback from them that just as the council had offered up some things that we should abstain from, from the idols and the pagan culture around them, that maybe I would want to consider listing some of those things for us to avoid and to not engage in. And I know they meant well, and so I was thinking about it a lot, and I wrestled with it. And I decided I'm not going to, but for two reasons. And I think it's important to kind of think through why. One, I think it's a discussion. And I think that that means it's not something that we do like this, that it's something we talk through as a community. Two, and more importantly, I think it actually misses the point of what this text is trying to get us to pay attention to. Well, I think that we certainly do need to be aware of and live with each other and encourage one another to abstain and avoid from practices and behaviors that aren't good for us, that take us away from God. If we run to those things, if we say, hey, we need to to hash out those rules, and we say rules are what's going to help us figure that out, I think we're actually going to choose to focus on rules instead of Jesus. And I get it. I get that rules are helpful. They help us know what's right, what's wrong. It makes things a little simpler. But I think God wants something a little more. He wants us to focus on him first. And in doing so, when we learn to listen for the voice of God in all that we do, we allow ourselves to move past what might be our preferences or our desires. We begin to learn how to love one another as he loves us and do things differently than we may have thought from the beginning. We learn that God can help make sense of things that don't make sense to us when they're too messy or they're too difficult. And it's really out of that principle, i got to be honest, that my tattoo is covered today. Because in praying about it and thinking about it, what I heard God say is, it's not more important than that person getting to worship. And I know for one person, maybe for others, I'm not sure, but for one person, it would have distracted them. It would have kept them from focusing in worship, and that would have kept them from God. And sure, I could have gotten into a whole rant about my rights, and I get to be me, and don't tell me to be different, and all that kind of stuff, Right? It's easy to go to, but the challenge is, had I done that, I would have chosen the second thing over a first thing. See, I have to do this too. I have to remember that the first things of salvation call me to focus on Jesus first and call me to work out all of the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on things that I think are important. And I get, they're important. We get to hold them but not as more important than Jesus. And he gets to tell us what order they're in. And that's whatever those things may be. And I mean it. Whatever those things may be. No matter how dear to you they may be, they may be like those peanut butter cups that you would hold and die, fall on a sword and die over it, that are the essential add-in to every single scoop of ice cream, right? That you can't have it without those, those peanut butter cups or chocolate sauce or caramel or whatever it is. We have to remember that those are second things. And that the essential thing, the first thing, is to focus on Jesus. And just like I get to love, and I would gladly accept this as a gift for any of you who want to drop it by. There are freezers all over campus. But as I get to love Tillamook's Oregon Hazelnut and Salted Caramel Ice Cream, it is delicious, in my opinion, the best one out there. Um, You get to love your ice cream of choice, too. And we need to find a way to eat them together. Because if we don't, we walk away from the truth of this scripture, 
along with offending and distancing ourselves from each other. And what's worse is I think that we also offend and distance ourselves from people who don't know Jesus at all, from people who maybe haven't ever eaten ice cream before. Here's another story. So last week, because I'd been gone, um, uh, I took two of the boys from our Renew homes out to dinner. And uh, they'd had a really important milestone in their lives while I was on vacation. They both reached the six-month uh, point of being clean and sober and was so proud of them. And was bummed I missed it, and I was like, dude, when I get back, we're going to celebrate. And so initially I was like, okay, my plan was there's this really great Cuban sandwich shop in Seattle, and we're going to get that, and then go have a fire on the beach in Alki. It was this amazing Seattle day, and I was like, I just want to do something that helps them know how loved and special and proud of them I am of them I am. And for those of you who don't know, our Renew Homes are, um, it's a partnership that we have with Eastside Academy, which is a Christian high school on our upper campus, and it serves kids who have histories of uh, abuse, neglect, or addiction, and we partner with them to help house some of their students that are homeless or unstably housed, or for whatever reason, home isn't a good fit. And one of the things I get to do is help oversee that program, and I get to hang out with these kids. Love it. So, and we have a boys' home and a girls' home. They've been around for two and a half years, and if you want to know more, come find me. But anyway, they both reached this important milestone. Both of them had been clean for six months, which the reason it's that important is neither of them had ever been clean this long since they started using, which is huge. And I know that every day they work so hard to seek God, to make good choices, and to do it in a way that allows them to step into who they know they have it in them to be. And so, yeah, on big days we celebrate. And I wanted to take them out, and I wanted to honor them. And so as I'm scrambling to figure out what to do, I'm like, all I could think of was this rooftop deck at Daniel's. It's in a building here in downtown Bellevue. It's on the 21st floor, and it has this panoramic view of Seattle, and I'm thinking, that's it. We're going to go do this. And so they don't know where we're going. I guess first we get in this building, and, you know, it's just like kind of corporate building. They're like, where are you taking us? And in my head, I'm like, they're going to love this. We're going to get like onion rings for dinner. This will be awesome. And um, so we get up there, and as we get off the elevators, I can kind of see that they both immediately get a little uncomfortable. Now, when they left the house, I, ha I mean, I, I saw what they'd been wearing, but I wasn't really thinking about what they were, were wearing because we were going to go to the beach, right? And they'd both made these tie-dye t-shirts. They're really proud of them. Kind of, it was the first day they could wear them because, you know, there's like a whole process. Like, you dye, and it cures, and you rinse, and wash. And so, for a high school boy, that's like eons. So this is the day they could wear them. And so they are, and they're in these shirts. And I, and I, I didn't really realize, but one of the other ones had decided that slippers were going to be the perfect thing to complete his ensemble. And so we're standing in the lobby at Daniel's, and they're in these tie-dye shirts and slippers, and I don't really care because, again, I'm proud and I wanna, I'm excited, but they kind of get uncomfortable, and they're like, I don't know if I want to be here. And they, they kind of start talking, and they even kind of said, we didn't think you were going to take us to a place like this. Like, we don't have to be here. It's okay. This is really nice. Um, and as they were doing that, I actually got a little angry. Not at them, but at the idea that somehow they were buying in this idea that they weren't enough to be there. That because they, sh they should look different, so that would make it okay for them to be there. They should be different, or somehow they weren't enough of something. Because in my book, they're more than enough. These kids are outstanding. They're amazing. And I'm so proud, right? And so I just kind of, I move past it. And I'm thinking in my head, you've been clean this long. We're going to do it. And I would have taken them to Canlis. Literally, had they been in just board shorts, barefoot, no shirt, we would have gone to Canlis, had a great dinner. Would have been awesome. Because they deserve, no matter what they look like, no matter where they've been, no matter where they've come from, to know that they are special, that they are honored, and they are valued. 
and that was how we were going to do it. And so we get seated. They start to focus more on the, the view and the great service that you get at Daniel's and the fact that the waiter is just there with the new Coke right as you're finishing the last one. And so it became a thing for how many Cokes can we drink? <laughs> um, and as they did that, as we're kind of settling in, I started to wonder, how many other places have they walked into? And because they didn't fit in, because maybe they look a little different, maybe they have a different past than some of the other people that they're engaging with, that they felt like they shouldn't be there and they've left. And then I started to wonder, how many times was that place a church? How many times had someone said to them, hey, young man, you shouldn't have that lip piercing when you're at church here? Tuck your shirt in. Why don't you have a collar on? Sit this way, look this way, do that, right? Things that in and of themselves aren't bad. What if they got told, hey, those marks on your arm from when you cut yourself, you should hide those. What if they got told the places that they've come from, the scars that they have from whatever it is they've dealt with, somehow made them not enough? I wondered if they, because of someone else's flavor of Christianity, felt like church wasn't for them and never came any further to take a taste and see what it was all about. I say all this because there's something I want you to reflect on. A study I came across recently, and this is data based on info from the last census, said that the number of Americans who don't go into church has mushroomed in, in over a 10-year time span from 39 million to 79 million. That represents one-third of the adult U.S. population. It's a 92% increase in a 10-year period. It's astounding to me. And I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for it, but I think one of the reasons, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, is that there are times where we can confuse other things with following Jesus. And as a result, other people walk away from all of it without even considering it even more. And I think we know this, but we can forget it. At least I know it and I forget it. So I'll point the finger at myself. The point isn't Christianity. It's Jesus. The point is being a Christian. The point is being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's accepting him as Lord and Savior, as the God who created and redeemed and sustains, as the God who has come, is coming, and will come again, bringing heaven with him. Now, some of you out there are like me, and I'm thinking there's probably one or two people, maybe. Um, when you hear something like this, it's easy to kind of look left and look right and go, yeah, those other people, they shouldn't do that. The hard thing in those moments is I have to recognize that I do it too. Sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes without realizing it, but I still do it. See, I, I do have my own set ideas on what my flavor of Christianity is. But if I choose my flavor of faith over Jesus, I am making a second thing more important than a first thing. Because from God's perspective, he doesn't care. Jesus, God created all, loves all, and died for all, and calls all to believe in him so that they might receive salvation and be saved. In my humbler moments and in my honest moments, I have to acknowledge that if, if I were to focus a little more on Jesus— instead of the version of him that I want or the version of faith that I want, how differently I would engage in relationships. How differently others might feel around me. Because it's easy for me to identify the moments where I've been wounded by other people, but I also need to be honest and identify the moments where I've wounded other people. 
And what Jesus says is, it's okay. Just keep focusing on me. Keep coming to me, and we'll work out the rest. And he's saying the same, I think, to all of you, too. So here's my push to you. What are the things that you're tempted to confuse as a first thing of faith? Are those things actually primary things? And as you navigate that, I would encourage you to hear the voice of God calling you and telling you how much he loves you, how much he cares about you, and how much he has died for you. And to keep turning up the volume there as you make sense of everything else. Would you pray with me? Holy God, thank you for being a God who does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. And that that's even true in our own lives and in our own hearts. And so God, as we digest the truth of your word, may we have the humility and the compassion to focus on you more than ourselves and to see the places in which you're calling us to be different, to love and to honor and care. May we be people who see you more than anything else, and may you order all the things in our lives in light of the saving grace you have given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.